What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing this week, man? Doing well, man. Investing in GameStop because we don't care about Wall Street's advice. We're taking over and redistributing that wealth, my friend. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, yeah, that, that GameStop stock price was something else, huh? So funny. Do I have a share? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually, speaking of video games, I just wanted to share, because I don't usually talk video games this much. I'm not much of a video game player myself, but I know you are. And I wanted to share my disappointment, right? So when I was a kid growing up, I used to love playing uh, baseball video games. Mm. But I also yeah. made the choice to become an Xbox player as I Correct. got older, which means that I've been devoid of a good baseball video yes. game. And up until this past week, I was like, here we go. We're going to get the show this year to Xbox platforms. And Sony Brazil released a rating on the 2021 The Show game. And Xbox and the Nintendo Switch were not listed as platforms, which is indicating that we might not see it on Xbox this year. So I'm pretty disappointed about that. Um, I, I was wondering, since you... I think our PlayStation person also, right? You have both systems. Is that correct? No, come no, on. You just do Xbox. You talk now. Come on, man. So you, yeah. you're you're loyal to Xbox. Yes. When are we gonna get the show? That's the thing. The license isn't exclusive anymore. So I guess it's just uh, whether the you know Xbox version was ready in time. You know, because it's more or less being started from scratch. Even though it's probably all, not all that different from PlayStation. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, I guess next year, then, if not this year, if, if that's true and that it is, in fact, not this year, I wouldn't rule that out just yet. But yeah, I mean, it is unique that it's like the one sports genre where the um, sim game is exclusive, but that's going away. I mean, it makes sense that it would go away because, you know, M MLB has no stake in the console wars. There's no reason why a sports game shouldn't be multi-platform just to make money, Absolutely. you know? So yeah. it's coming at least. Um, but I feel like once you do finally get your hands on one, you'll be very excited because I feel like sport sim games are even more satisfying when you haven't played them in a few years. If you get the new Madden every year, it's kind of diminishing returns. If you wait a while, I feel like you get a lot out of it. Oh, I, I completely agree with that take. Um, I hadn't bought it, like a new Madden um, until the Tom Brady one a couple of years back. And I was like, holy crap, these these graphics and this game control. <laughs> but I see the reviews every year. People are like, it's just the same old shit. So yeah. uh, I'm going to be, I'm gonna play, be playing this baseball game. I'm going to be like, oh, man, I remember when I was playing. Uh, I don't what was the one back in like 01 or 02 where like uh, there's uh, a few RBI Slam. baseball. Um I used to play uh, Ken Gr Gr Griffey Jr. a lot. That right, one was great. Yeah. Man. Yeah, before the show kind of took it over and everything else fell by the wayside. And, um, they basically gave up on 2K baseball, which was the only option for Xbox for a while. So, yeah. Actually, it's kind of the same way um, uh, EA gave up on NBA Live because mm -hmm. NBA isn't, ex isn't uh, exclusive, but 2K just, they just outpaced them and they couldn't keep up, basically. So they don't even try anymore. Well, that's our uh, our video game talk, riveting baseball talk here at the top. But uh, we're, we are going to talk about something I think is pretty interesting that uh, the news just dropped today that Harry Potter, which is now 
under the HBO Max umbrella, is going to be producing a live-action television show. Not many details are out right now about what yeah. the show is going to look like, what it's going to center around. Uh, initial reaction hearing this news, Dave? Uh, ha- happy about it for sure. Also not that surprised. It makes a lot of sense given how uh, Warner's has been moving regarding HBO Max. Remember, they've been developing spinoff shows for all those DC movies. We know there's going to be one for Batman, and the Suicide Squad, for example. And I mean, yeah, it's one of probably their second most valuable IP after the DC stuff, I'd have to imagine. So you got to keep that going. The Fantastic Beasts movies, whether you like them or you don't, definitely have some mixed feelings about that. Check those reviews out, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Fantastic Beasts 3 is not expected till the end of next year. Is if the plan sticks, there's two more of those. Either way, you got to keep that Harry Potter stuff going. Harry, you know, HBO's doubling down on Game of Thrones, right? We got word of a, a second spinoff regarding Dunkin' Egg. We know House of Dragons coming. So they, they know what their best stuff is, and they're going to make new stuff around that. So it makes plenty of sense. Um, it's funny. It's funny, like, the, the, the comments. Like, this was an exclusive report from The Hollywood Reporter, and, like, Warner, Warner Brothers and AT&T, Warner Media, whatever, they had denied that a Harry Potter <laughs> series was in any stage of development. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's clickbait. See, it's not happening. And it's like, how many times has shit been reported that it has been denied and then later confirmed? Like, like yeah. w- w- what's new here, people? Come on. Like, also, this makes the most sense. Like, there's there's no reason to make an investment like this and have this IP and just let it sit at this right. point. Especially when I, HBO Max is just trying to build their platform out. I think the, a reason behind that statement, beyond, like, just the normal stuff we expect, again, uh, Chris Evans denied that the Captain America talks had resumed, right? And Tatiana Maslany said she wasn't She-Hulk until Kevin Feige mentioned it on the investor call, right? Like, this happens all the time. But it's important to note that NBC Universal actually has the distribution rights to Harry Potter. The IP is owned by Warners, but NBCU has, like, everything regarding Harry Potter. So, does and that goes through 2025. Does that mean the show can't exist until 2025? I don't know. Maybe they'll strike a deal. If you remember, um, Harry Potter launched, the movies launched on HBO Max, then left after a few months because actually, when they're coming back to Peacock because mm-hmm. NBC actually has that right. So they like took a check from Warners to have it there for the Max launch. So I wonder if that has something to factor in. Either way, obviously, it's not close. It sounds like it's just being discussed. And I mean, yeah, duh. Why wouldn't they discuss something like this? I mean, uh, on the one hand, I think it's it's the sort of thing where some people look at the Harry Potter movies that have been made, even Fantastic Beasts, and are pretty protective of them. I think for as much as you can look at some of the early ones and the CGI isn't great and the acting's not great, but they're kids. Um, you know, people like the movies. Um, on the other hand, I want to see them re- redo everything. And I don't know if I necessarily want uh, the whole Harry Potter story over again, but why don't we start with like, let's see Snape's story. Let's see more of Dumbledore's like adventures, Uh, McGonagall. Like, I feel like you can take those people in the center, you know, like mini series around them, 
tie things back together. I mean, what what do you want to see out of a Harry Potter yeah. series? Well, this just reminds me of everything we've talked about with Star Wars spinoffs and even Thrones spinoffs, right? It's like, do you want to connect to the existing canon that the average fan knows about, or do you do something completely new? Um, the Hogwarts Legacy video game that's coming out in 2022, not canon, J.K. Rowling's not involved in that, but that's actually taking place in the 1800s, which is, uh, you know, decades before even Fantastic Beasts. Uh, and basically it's going to be, like, you know, brand new, not connected to what we know. It makes sense. This is, you know, it's a playground, a sandbox that we're talking about with Star Wars. Uh, I think there's plenty of potential to do something like that. Why don't we just go do shit at Hogwarts in the 1600s? Yeah. Cool. Why not? Uh, you, I guess you could, if you want to, like, do name brand stuff, you could do, like, the founding of Hogwarts with, like, Godric Gryffindor and Salazar Slytherin and, and those cats if you wanted to, I guess. Sure. Hmm. Uh, I would love this to be set at Hogwarts, though, just kind of show more of that, you know, like because yeah. Harry Potter, the books, the books really get into it. But the movies kind of have to whip through, especially at the end. Like, remember, like Quidditch never shows up in later movies at all. Like <laughs> yeah. they don't go to class again, but they had to focus on the greater plot. But if you had maybe like a, I don't know, a lower stakes Harry Potter thing. Yeah. In I, no form. The, the other alternative, though, is um, I have to imagine J.K. Rowling is going to be involved in some way because she controls yeah, all the so much of the creative process. And despite all the controversy with her statements about trans people aside, she's going to be involved. She's not involved in the video game, but that was by her choice. Um, you have to imagine she's involved. Maybe you do this like post Potter epilogue, post cursed child and set it in like the present times. Cause like the Harry Potter stories in the nineties, I guess that's a, a, a option too. There's, there's plenty of options, but I would like Hogwarts to be kind of the, the, the familiarity like, you know, like Mandalorian took us to Tatooine and we had some familiar beats there. What would set it in Hogwarts, something we know, and everything else can be new for all I care. Yeah, I even feel like there's maybe something post-show if you do want to, like, post the, the Harry Potter stories. If you want to connect it to the main IP, maybe it's like, you know, loosely you see some of these characters pop up, but it's following. I, I saw you tweet about, like, uh, Law and Order. <laughs> you know, not my joke, but it's a great, great, great night. Great meeting. But um, it would be funny to see something like that or interesting to see that like ors like going around have like almost like a procedural show or something sure. like that. You, you can get weird and even like I, I could see them if they have a couple of hits, do something like what Marvel's doing now where you have a whole bunch of shows exploring all different parts and you yeah. just really can build out so much of this world. Why not? So, Why not? I mean, that was kind of the potential of Fantastic Beasts, right? Oh, we get to see the Wizarding World in America, outside of England. Cool. What's that like? And yeah, I mean, returns are so-so, but that's more about the creative choices than anything else, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's so much untapped potential in the Wizarding World. We still, you know, haven't done any of it. If if they said, we're going to do a Game of Thrones-level production retelling of the original harry potter yeah. story would you be yes. in i mean I, sure of course just because on the chance it's better because like the harry potter movies are very up and down as far as adaptations of the text go but it's not i actually really don't want that to be honest like the books the books are the books the books are mm -hmm. good enough i don't need you to try again like just yeah. do something new but just add to it i i think i wouldn't mind seeing it maybe in a couple of years, you know, you kind of test out these ideas, build out the world. And if you find a director who just really connects with this world and Rowling mm -hmm. really trusts, maybe then you're like, let's retell this, but it's too, yeah. too soon in my opinion. And I, I think the, the key question with this, and, and, and as we've been saying, the, the scope of how far they take Harry Potter, 
TV and Harry Potter media is how involved does J.K. Rowling remain? Because George Lucas, originally the sole creative force behind Star Wars, was stopped being involved. And Disney has had their ups and downs and seems to now they just kind of take pitches. You got a cool Star Wars idea? Tell us about it and we'll let you know what we think. I would love if they did that with Harry Potter, but it's, and even have J.K. hear the pitches. I don't know, but like, I feel like you kind of got to open it up a little bit unless she has a great plan, I guess. Cause, but yeah, she'll probably just be involved and do everything. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I don't mind her being involved, but I do feel like um, I'd like to see some, some new voices telling these stories. So I think the more you inspect J.K.'s writings and, world perspective the more you can kind of pick apart some yeah fantastic beasts 3 did pick pick up other co-writers in addition to her so that's a positive sign at least that she's willing to have other people give input so but i mean some people will just be out on this given the jk rolling of it all totally understandable but uh at the end of the day she's gonna remain involved because she it's her it's her shit she gets to do what she wants with it you know absolutely uh I'm, I'm excited for this sounds like you are as well give us the harry potter content uh and give us that euphoria content uh probably a show jk rowling did not watch um being quite honest <laughs> certainly um, not <laughs> but god we get we got the second uh euphoria special part two uh yep. jewels um a trip through the mind of jewels i guess and mm-hmm. it's you know, kind of this like in treatment esque episode where it's very it's very much Jules talking to a therapist, exploring the things she's been through. You know, I'd say incredibly vulnerably, um, and you know, I think a really interesting depiction of uh, her identity as a trans uh, male to female transgender person. Um, her relationship with sex and feeling loved and her relationship with Rue really, I think well done. And it has the, you know, the, the euphoria touches the, you know, liability by Lord dropping at just the right time, Sure, uh, you know, opening with it, you know, seeing all these scenes play out in the, the iris of Jules's eye. And um, then you also kind of get that the scene where it almost feels bit manic like you're almost like jumping from thought to thought like spinning around all these cool transitions kind of trippy in a sense i i thought the episode was great i mean um very different from the rue episode so a lot to kind of juxtapose there um but overall i found this to be a really intriguing episode how did you like it yeah i also liked it and i like that it was different than the rue special uh this time around, it's not a two-hander between Zendaya and Coleman Domingo. Like, yes, there's a second character, the Jules therapist, but she's really there to listen, like a therapist, mm-hmm. right? It, this is really all Jules, but I think that was smart because you get less of Jules in Euphoria proper because it's mainly focused on Zendaya's lead POV, even if we get a lot of Jules as well. And in the process, this actually kind of adds to like her journey in season one you learn more stuff about her like the stuff about her mom i believe is completely new mm-hmm. and you know juxtaposing having a mom who struggled with addiction that she cut off and can't stand while also realizing that she's like the sole sobering force in rue's life it's kind of a unique parallel um and 
I, I just like both these specials for how they, they are different than Euphoria season one, because Euphoria season one is very maximalist, very Shirley, very neon lights, you know, not to mention a lot of uh, aggressive, uh, over the top narratives, right? So mm-hmm. this is much more stripped down, much more dialogue focused out of necessity, because these were like, you know, shot in quarantine to hold people over till they could get season two really going. Uh, and it's just, it's just kind of really cool again that they actually had like some real substance for the characters in these two specials because mm-hmm. yeah i mean t- testament to sam levinson you know he, he really uh knows what he's doing with this show but it's really cool to see a whole another side to it with these two specials yeah i agree and i i think um the thing levinson gets at that's really fascinating to me is how he kind of strips back in these two episodes each of these characters to where their mental health issues probably stem from you know in relation to uh rue losing you know being born and losing her dad i think when she was just a baby or maybe like her mom might even been pregnant i forgot what the timeline was there but pretty much like growing up without a dad who died in 9-11 if i remember that correctly um and then also you know jules and the relationship with her mom and how that really impacted her um and then how they kind of look for similar parts of those things that they didn't have in each other, those like steadying forces. I mean, there's that, that scene or that part in the beginning when uh, Jules is uh, comparing Rue to how a, a mother might look at like a baby, you know, it just like pretty much unconditional love is what she's describing. And um, the therapist asks, is that, is that how your mom looked at you? And you can see in, in, Jules's face how quickly she kind of like snaps back and is like well you know you're just baby you don't remember those things and kind of cuts off away from that emotion but the way that they kind of tie these things together is really I think expertly done and um, like you said I think this kind of takes euphoria which can be this show that people see as just big and vibrant and bombastic at times and really i think strip it down to what's at the center of these stories which are these these teenagers going through a lot of shit and trying to figure it all out so um definitely very impressed with these two episodes and and, uh, awesome to get some euphoria content before we were really expecting it for sure yeah definitely definitely what'd you think of the uh brand new song in the jewel special the billy eilish rosalia collab that airs in the middle came out a few days ago Uh, i thought it was pretty cool did you have any thoughts on it it wasn't something that really stood out too much to me but yeah that was nice i would have liked a little more more from it just because it's like a billy first song and it's like rosalie like fitting into that you know it doesn't really feel like those two who are very different as artists coming together but still Mm -hmm. cool to hear nonetheless yeah i i think this show even when it doesn't totally hit like the like that i think it's still they, they blend everything together so seamlessly. It barely stands yes. out to me, at least. Uh, any last thoughts on this before we move on? have to imagine that Euphoria Season 2 is still a ways away. I don't yeah. believe they've gotten back into production. Like, we know Succession is back into production, and but like I feel like Euphoria is still kind of a ways away. They probably just haven't been able to find a way to make it the way they want to, and thus are just kind of kicking the can, unfortunately. But uh, happy to wait. For sure. A show we'll be tuning into whenever it's on. Um, why don't we jump to a show that I can't wait to tune back into, which is Lupin. Hell yeah. uh, the 
uh, I don't know, was it BBC or no? Was this? Uh, it's a Netflix show. Made it's on Netflix. Netflix yeah. Um, which I, I'm kind of surprised. I it's this also French, so wouldn't it be BBC? Yeah, that, that's that's right. I don't know why I thought BBC, but I think it's because I got a lot of like BBC type show vibes from this. It's the French Channel Canal, Canal Plus, like I think that. it's called. Um, yes, nailed it. Look at that. Um, and I was really impressed with this show. And actually, it's funny because the first episode it, it starts off with a very big heist and. I actually kind of got left the first episode. and I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm totally bought into this. But by the time you get around to the third or fourth, I was like totally hooked. And I felt like it really started clicking on all cylinders. And they leave you after the fifth episode on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, very interested to see where the, the rest of the uh, show goes when we get part two. Um, but Dave, did you enjoy this as much as I did? Oh, yeah, I, I mainlined this show and actually watched all five episodes in one sitting, something I honestly can't remember the last time I've done. Uh, really, really loved it. Uh, Lupin came out worldwide on Netflix back on January 8th, kind of uh, to, I think, a little fanfare in terms of like, I didn't see a lot of press for it, at least here in the US, but it uh, became the first French show to get into the Netflix top 10 and has remained there for uh, the most of, if not the all of the past two weeks. And it's definitely a big sensation for them. And you can, you can see that that's obvious. Um, and Netflix, you know, they just continue to just grab moments and dominate conversation. This reminds me a lot of how Queen's Gambit was on very few people's radar, despite all the pedigree going into it still kind of snuck up on people, you know, and mm -hmm. Lupin, uh, I think especially to Americans, the average American probably is not something that's super familiar, even though it's this, you know, classic uh, character and uh, set of stories in France, you know, like I was really unfamiliar with it. And uh, I, I had known of the Lupin the third anime, which was based on like they made up like a grandson of the Lupin character. I had, no, I had known of that. I didn't know it was connected to this show or these famous novels, which are like the closest thing france has to like a james bond or a sherlock holmes kind of story you know um and then to see that i think the interesting choice with this show is that it's not an adaptation but rather like an inspiration like the lupin stories exist in real life in the story of lupin the show and i thought that was really cool yeah i i think it's it's not only really cool how they kind of like brought these stories to life but they do it in a way that doesn't feel totally outlandish you know especially as you like read i'm sure as you read those stories and I, again i'm not super familiar with them um i can imagine that they they probably feel more realistic but still like someone who's basically just like a sleight of hand i don't, I don't want to say magician because he's not actually a magician. That gentleman thief archetype is what you'll right. see thrown but, around kind of like uh danny ocean in uh oceans yeah. 11 for example or even like catwoman that kind of that kind of thing but I, I feel like Omar C really, really like embodies Asan and, and that vibe so well. And he's like this kind of like big hulking guy. So you wouldn't yeah. really expect him to like be that like quick and just like able to like kind of move in and out like he does. But he's really slick in this. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably the best part about the show. If you look at it from a macro view, because Omar C is this imposing like six foot two black man, a non-traditional Parisian. And the show kind of dabbles in that uh, 
as it goes where Hassan knows his status and like will call people out on that or like notice when people like give him side eye right as like why is this black man walking around here you know like it's pretty 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 tactful I would say but the show has uh, the pace of Lupin five episodes for this first part of the show and we know this at part two is coming but these first five episodes I feel like a lot happens it reminds me of that just consistent like economics that comes with European dramas where they're short seasons that are really effective and efficient. And in the process of being efficient, Lupin manages to like thread that needle where Omar C should not be getting away with everything he's doing. He is, a, a, he is a very assuming person and mm-hmm. should be recognizable, but he's not. And you don't care because of how well paced the show is and how rhythmic it is. Yeah. yeah that's what I love about it. I know it, when he's, you know, in the first episode, they they do this heist at the Louvre. They have a uh, auction of a famous necklace with all these diamonds worth like mm-hmm. what? I think he buys it for fifty million dollars or the equivalent of that um, over there. So it's, it ain't cheap. And, yes. <laughs> um, it, when someone does that, you know, you would think that there would be all this fanfare and all these people kind of like tuning into this, but then. You know, things go down. Necklace obviously gets stolen. Um, it's that kind of kicks off the whole series in a sense. But it, I, I never it was like, ah, this is like super unrealistic. I think if anything, what I found almost like unbelievable in the first episode, I didn't totally buy into was I felt like Omar C was almost too casual in some of his like responses. And I was like, he seems aloof a bit on the screen. But then I think that comes about more as like you understand the character and Right. what they're going for yeah i mean watching him walk out of the uh service <laughs> entrance in the middle of the louvre pyramid like plaza area wearing this nice suit and literally holding like the uh like little briefcase the necklace was in not even high or no, he's just holding the necklace yep. not even hiding i was like okay man like yeah let's be a little more discreet here my guy <laughs> but uh, as the show progressed it's like oh no nah, i got it it's, it's working <laughs> was there any um any episodes or any like of the the schemes or plots that you really loved or that i mean mm. it seems like you really like the whole first half of this so far yeah i really like how it starts like again like the whole getting the gang together thing with his uh uh what do you call it uh you know co-workers on the heist that happens like a few seconds you know it's like Mm -hmm. so quick and the and yeah i I found it quite thrilling but in general i uh appreciated how actually invested i was with a lot of the other side plots right like his uh ex-wife or uh, you know baby moms and 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 son that didn't feel superfluous i actually thought they did a good job with that and built it up to the fact that when you get that cliffhanger episode five it actually lands yeah. Also, I really like that uh, disgraced uh, journalist character popping up towards the end. I, I mm-hmm. thought that was quite effective. And uh, you kind of know what's coming in terms of her fate uh, before it happens. And like that dread sense in, but regardless, still quite effective. Yeah, I, I agree. I think both. I think they really uh, built up the backstory really well. And that's why I really like the third episode where he kidnaps the commissioner and is I don't know about like torturing him, but he's basically like holding him hostage and trying to get information out of him. And yes, the way that they kind of like juxtapose that in the present to Asan's past of, you know, after his dad kills himself in prison, he's basically raising himself and he's facing a lot of bullying at school. He's very lonely. Like they kind of build in these things that are happening in the present and 
why those are more meaningful with the, the history in a really seamlessly and I think a, a way that makes a lot of sense and, and really pushes the narrative along. And like you said, you end up really, I think, feeling attached to these characters. Like I know in that final episode when they couldn't find Raul, I was like, oh man, I had this real like pit in my stomach. But you kind of, I think you kind of also saw that coming too, right? The second Raul went off to the beach on his own, I was like, hmm. this kid's getting kidnapped. Like they're going to lose him. Um, any other like performances or, or people that stood out to you in this? Hmm. I mean, obviously Omar C stands out. He's in basically every scene mm -hmm. and he, he's quite good. He like, he has that charm that I yeah. think, uh, a, a San character requires. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I, I you know, they're, they're not more than like stock characters really, but I did enjoy a lot of like the cops that are kind of yeah. on his tail and, uh, you know, like I, I like seeing that banter in the station, even if it's you know nothing yet you, ha you haven't seen before. Still, still like that. I'm really interested to see. Uh, uh, so the the cop Yusef, the one who kind of is like cracking the the loop in connection mm -hmm. here. Um, I, I really found that character to be really intriguing, and I'm interested to see now that he's kind of figured it out that Hassan is is Lupin. If they're going to um, potentially like team up or how that's going to be working if he's going to run interference for him uh a lot of really interesting things to be figured out in the second half of the season so we'll be tuning into that and we recommend that you catch up uh if you can we don't have a drop date for the next we don't time, but we do know part two was filmed already so they mm -hmm. did say 2021 so i'm guessing probably uh maybe like fall right? we might get it yeah build probably. anticipation i also wanted to note in that first episode when he's casing the louvre as a guy working there uh you see the the room where the mona lisa is and i like that it also shows that on the other side of that room is the wedding at Cana, the veronese painting that's like 20 feet tall uh you know like the, the, the long table that jesus is sitting at and i always just wanted to point out whenever i can that that is a way better painting than the mona lisa and if you go to the louvre you'll have a great view of it because everyone's staring at the Mona Lisa, even though they can't get right next to it. Meanwhile, that amazing painting, you can touch it if you really wanted to. Like, geez. Favorite, my favorite part of the loop is just is just that, that dichotomy of like a superior painting that no one pays attention to in the same room as the Mona Lisa, which is, you know, five feet tall or whatever. I have a major love-hate relationship with art museums, so uh, we, we can get into that on a different podcast someday. <laughs> but we'll, uh, we're going to jump now. now. Tune in. <laughs> we'll jump to the climb um the 2019 technically film that we're we're just getting to in 2021 because uh we didn't go to any of the film festivals this was at and then it's supposed to be released back in march and got pushed back and back and back because of covid finally dropped i think in november right. is that right jeez mm -hmm. vod um, last just last week and and this is a movie with really not many people that you would know. Uh, I guess like Gail Rankin is probably yeah. the most famous actress in this. Uh, For sure. From, from Glow. Uh, we saw her in something else. Perry Mason last year. Yes. Thank you, Perry Mason. Um, so, you know, this is a movie that I think none of us were expecting, but I found it pretty delightful. How did you how did you enjoy The Climb, Dave? Yeah, I liked it a lot. It's just a movie I had been anticipating after that warm con reception nearly two years ago. And I just, you know, I had it on the list for last March and then put it on the delay pile like everything else, of course. Uh, so yeah, not, not having any expectations for it beyond expecting it to be good. I, uh, 
quite liked it. I, I thought uh, the, the some like structural choices in the movie that kind of stand out, right? It's like basically told in a series of vignettes and those vignettes, you know, just really long scenes, usually really long takes, if not one takes, you know, and mm-hmm. in the process, you just kind of hanging out with these characters and it's melodramatic, but it's also funny. And I, I thought it was quite lovely. I I found it to be uh, a very frustrating film from the perspective of uh, the character Mike, who is <laughs> like the the friend. I guess I guess they're both kind of protagonists, but Kyle is really like the person you root for. He's really the protagonist you want to see um, come out of this uh, uh, on top. And Kyle and Mike have this really weird relationship where mm-hmm. Kyle is just like the nicest guy ever seems to like be kind of falling uh, upwards in life. And Mike is just a shit bag of a person. Like, and I just wanted the whole time for Kyle just to like, stop hanging out with this dude. I totally got where uh, Marissa played by uh, Gal Rankin was coming from and just trying to like do anything to get him away from Mike. Cause Mike is toxic, man. I hated that. Yeah. character. Well, I saw that in like negative reviews, comments. It's like, I don't know, just pick better partners and friends. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, though, right? Oh, we just call the Eagles and drop the ring in. You know, I guess there's no movie, right? right. So, <laughs> but it's a good point. Yeah, I, it, it's hard to root for Mike because from the first scene, which maybe is the strongest scene in the film when they're biking totally. up and down hills in France, and like Mike is this, you know, really like, uh, enthusiastic bicyclist cyclist and uh kyle isn't and then he just mike just kind of drops that he had slept with kyle's fiance on the eve of their uh nuptials and then you're like oh shit well that that's quite the bomb and then later on (laughs) it happens again and like the i I really like the flip though that happens where mike is the one who uh becomes out of shape and kyle loses the weight right and they kind of like situations but yeah, I mean, from the jump, it's hard to root for Mike. And then when he comes back into the fold, you can tell he's uh, a bit self-destructive, a bit uh, self-centered anyway. Mm-hmm. But in the process, again, like uh, a lot of those scenes, yeah, some of it's hard to watch, some of it's cringy. But like, I really like that Christmas scene where Mike mm-hmm. like falls through the table and like <laughs> you get the offhand comments from the sisters and the parent yeah. stuff. And that scene in particular, yeah, maybe it's a little like, film school 101 but you get that steady cam following around the house and you focus on each window as you move around and it remains in one take on that steady cam and i really like that one especially because going into that scene you transition from like that fall leave scene and the next thing you know it's mike in the car with snow against like a quick wipe you know mm-hmm. so i appreciate those flourishes but yeah, yeah. I, mean, I i just kind of laughed at a lot of stuff like and it's a little dark but like i i, I was I was laughing pretty consistently. Uh, probably the one I laughed the hardest at the moment I laughed the hardest at was, uh, I think it was, grow, is it Grow Up? Yeah, when they're at the church and he comes and he like drives his car up like over the church lawn and he's like, all right, let's fucking do this. And he just runs in and he's like, I object. And they're like, we, we don't we do not do that here. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you doing? And then he's like, you can't marry her. Like, uh, and my, my favorite moment is when it, it all kind of dies down and like the one sister's boyfriend is like, that was awesome. And yeah. He's like, he's like, thanks. <laughs> like it's such a funny, like follow up moment. And before that Kyle's dad's like 
you know, sometimes in life, you just have to pick yourself up and keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, when, like when he first showed up, Mike first showed up, another, I think it was like an uncle was like, oh, shit's about to get good. Like, I was like, this is like exactly what I, I want to see at like any wedding that I go to. Just very entertaining. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think some some vignettes are stronger than others. Like when in the, in the last one, when he's moving out. I was like, ah, okay, this one isn't really doing a lot for me. It's nice to like see them, I guess, like finding some sort of like middle ground in their relationship, but it didn't really go like it didn't really change that much over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's probably the point is like you kind of like, I guess if the, if the movie has a point on relationships, like sometimes you just like are stuck into these relationships that you have since childhood and you can't find a way to change them or get out of them, but. Man, I just wanted Kyle to like grow a sack and like just totally cut him off. He just couldn't do it. Frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, he did get divorced. That's true. Mike was right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Interesting because uh, Mike and Kyle, the two main characters, um, that that said their actual names, Kyle Marvin and Michael Angelo Covino, um, wrote. uh, it was directed by Michael Angel- Angelo Covino, and they all, uh, also produced it together. So maybe this is a pair we'll be hearing more from. Who knows? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll be checking out their next thing for sure. Uh, also, shout out Mike's parents for naming him Michael Angelo. Yeah. <laughs> first and middle name. And there's also, I, I kind of forgot the context of it, but there was one scene where the two of them are talking. It's like, what's good? And then he immediately responds, Peaky Blinders. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was funny. And it reminded me that we have to catch up on that. So yeah, final uh, season in production now. Peaky Blinders review coming soon, uh, but even sooner is another Netflix film, The White Tiger, uh, from Ram- Ramin Barani. Got it yep. right. And uh, man, I found this to be a pretty delightful and surprising little Netflix drop. And you know, especially for January Netflix drops. Yes. Pretty pretty surprised to have enjoyed one this much. Um, you know, this is this is a story about Indian people. Um, you know, specifically Balram, played by Adrash Gurai, who is looking to um, change his status in life to uh, move up caste from the the caste with the little belly to the caste with the big belly, um, mm. and really. Uh, uh, Throughout the movie, a Run the Jewels song was stuck in my head, which is lie, cheat, uh, steal, kill, win. Come on, everybody doing it. And that's pretty much like if you have to find the movie in a short sentence, that's pretty much it. Yeah, um, sure. Did you find this movie? Kill as your masters as if you were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I liked it. I, I think it's. Uh, it's straightforward. Like, I, I don't think it's the subtlest thing where it, with its themes, but it's still, you know, like a classic rags to riches story and it has stunning production values. It was shot in Delhi. You can, you can definitely tell. And, uh, I, I like it as a companion piece to Slumdog Millionaire. A lot of people obviously are making that comment. Um, what is it? Uh, Barani is actually a friend of the guy who wrote the book that was adapted into Slumdog Millionaire, but in Slumdog Millionaire, Deb Patel's character, uh, kind of picks himself up out of you know the, the the poor the poor cast due to like luck and circumstance and chance more or less in the way tiger uh baran 
he's an active participant in his upward mobility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty stark. I also appreciate that, you know, Balran isn't like infallible. He's not in control all the time. He makes mistakes and misjudges, mm-hmm. you know, situations pretty consistently throughout, throughout his rise. So uh, I, I found that much, you know, quite believable. And I, I think it's, you know, I, I, I like that um, different side of this, again, kind of similar sentiment of trying to build yourself up out of a society that's not going to do much to help you do that otherwise. Right. And the way tiger, what I like, I wish we got more of it was more stuff about that caste system, right? Like yeah. as Balran's like narrating, he's mentioning like globalism stuff all the time about how India and China are the future and, you know, Americans are outsourcing in India and all this stuff. Yeah, there's, there's so, there was so much on the surface, I think like geopolitically that they could have even gotten into more because of the caste system stuff and like the corruption of like the Indian society He's like touched on throughout the way he's treated as a servant. Like it, it's simmering, but like I wish he almost uh, addressed it more directly. Mm-hmm. And you know, I haven't read the book, but the book uh, from 08 actually, you know, is award winning. And this structure of n- narration is from the book, and you know, it's a faithful adaptation. As a result, I wonder if maybe if this story would have been even better if we didn't start with like an in media res moment where we you know, see the, the kid get hit by the car, right? And like flash yeah. flashback. And like we know he's successful right away eventually. And we're seeing how he got there. I wonder if it could have been better like dramatically if we'd built to that without kind of spilling the beans right away. Yeah, that was really fascinating. And it's funny because uh, to start the movie with that and then have that be, I don't want to say like an inconsequential part of the movie, but it, you kind of had already seen uh, Balram moving like towards this thing where he's like i have to like start doing more stuff i have to keep like uh like he was like seeing them as family so to speak you know oh, you're my family you're my brother but you could tell that like the the seams were starting to show a little bit like with it uh so i i don't even know if if that was like the the most breaking part in the movie for him i mean certainly i think it's the most dramatic part because you see uh i think there's a lot there in terms of not only the role that being in this cast and then trying to create upwards mobility like also corrupts his morals and corrupts yeah. the person sure. he is um but you also i think see a lot of the like americanized perspective and corruption in those like in his masters so to speak like mm-hmm. I, I i really found like pinky and uh ashok to be two characters that uh as they're like kind of portraying that like american like intellectual idealism over in india just really like reprehensible people who like are are on the surface like oh like Mm -hmm. how are like what do you want like how can we help you get better and then like when push comes to shove are just like total dirtbags who still paying him like shit too as a servant you know exactly and then when you know if he got like annoying or if he's too like overbearing on a shook especially when you know his brother comes back afterwards and he's noticed he's not a great influence he he pushes him he tells him to go away i don't want you near he, they tell him he smells like it's it's really awful treatment but yeah oh, you know yeah. they on the surface they try to act like these like philanthropist people i found that to be a very interesting commentary um I agree, though. I don't think this is like the subtlest movie, you know, especially like at the very end, you pretty much just get a straight narration 
um, you know, talking to the camera uh, yeah. monologue from him. But um, I think for what my expectation was this movie going in, I found this to be just super engaging and fun throughout. Definitely. Definitely. I really like the uh, get pop and fat Joe drop when they first get to uh, yeah. Delhi. That, that, that was well done. But yeah, I mean, like it's it's a you know it's a two hour movie, but the end and the beginning, you can tell that Balram doesn't have much connection to his family, especially once his dad dies, and like it's just kind of like yada yada that he probably got his whole family killed in retaliation via a newspaper headline. He doesn't even say anything about it. I was like, I oh wow, that is that is something, all right. And I guess he rationalized that well. Either we all live at the bottom or one of us gets out now versus, you know, buying my sh- the shack later. It's like, all right, I guess uh, you're happy with that. That's fine. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, like, thematically, it's just like you're either the chicken waiting to get your head cut off or you bust out of the coop. Which one are you going to be? And it's like, yeah. all right, we got it. We got it. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know if there's much like payoff with that throughout the film, but it's just kind of fun to see the story played out because, yeah. again, production values are strong. For sure. Um, definitely a movie worth checking out, especially because uh, I guess up until this coming week, Dave, we don't really have a ton of new high quality movies to be checking out. So um, this is a pleasant surprise. Any last mm-hmm. thoughts before we wrap up for the, the show? Seems to be another hit for Netflix in their top 10 right now. Um, first thing I've seen Priyanka Chopper do in a while, she's an active actor, but first thing I've been kind of tuned in, I haven't liked all of her choices in terms of movies in the West. Um, but I actually kind of liked her. Like I, I understood why she picked the role. Cause initially early on, I'm like, Oh, it's just kind of the girlfriend character that's from America. So she has a slightly different perspective on things, but like you could tell like uh, she gets at least a few scenes and pieces of dialogue to make her, uh, make it worth her while, I guess you, you could say. For sure. Um, I actually didn't even realize that was Priyanka Chopra until I, until after I ended it. I was like, Oh, uh, she's married to a Jonas Brothers. That's how I most know her, but <laughs> yeah. very famous Bollywood actress. And oh yeah, definitely gonna break through here at some point. So, um, all right, what other people gotta be watching for next week? So next week we will be talking about Judas and the Black Messiah, courtesy of Sundance, baby. That's Ooh. coming out on the twelfth on HBO Max. So we'll get to that early. And there's some other stuff like The Dig on Netflix. Speaking of Carrie Mulligan, back to her once again. And we got HBO Max's The Little Things, Denzel, Jared Leto, Rami Malik. Exciting. There's some other movies we might be checking out as well. Music from Arlo Parks. So TV front's still quiet, but the, mo- the movie uh, clip will be going through February by the look of it, which is nice. Hell yeah. And uh, stay tuned for all that. Hit that subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, go to soundcloud.com slash pod and let us know your thoughts on the podcast on with a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Um, also, follow us on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. Um, and follow Dave for more takes on Harry Potter-themed television shows. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Hey.